We just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to look at your word. We ask you to lead and guide as we examine your word and the predictions for the history of this, this world and some of its past, some still to come. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're getting to the section of Daniel that many liberal scholars tell us could not have been written by Daniel at the time that he said that it was written, proved that this was all one book written long before anybody, because most people want to say that it was written around the Roman Empire and that there was no way he could have predicted all these, all these uh, historic events with the accuracy that it was, was predicted with. Unless you factor in God, who knows everything from beginning to end, and who knows the future because he's already seen it. So he gives the actual definition. So, but I give you that because when you talk to people and you start sharing them, you're going to find somebody who's going to think they're intellectual and say, oh, yeah, that was, that was accredited to Daniel. But we all know that it was written in the early, early Roman Empire. Uh, and that's just not a true statement. So we just want to throw that out for you because the accuracy we start seeing in his, his prophecies here is amazing. And we just want to look at this. There are people that will say, well, the Christians view this as you know, too simplistic. You know, when we talk about the ten, the 10 heads and the 10 horns, and we say, well, this is the Roman Empire. And they'll go, well, no, this group was actually this many tribes. And it's like, yeah, we can break those tribes down to as many tribes as you want. But the goals were the goals, even though you could break the goals down into probably 20 different sub divisions, they were still collectively called the Gauls. The Franks were the same thing. Even though you could divide the Franks into many, many tribal groupings, and so you could say, well, obviously these 10, these ten things that, you know, na overall nations, went to those nations, well, yeah, you could do that with any, we want to, we just throw those things out for you, because those are the kind of things you're going to hear people say when they, or if you do your own research, you'll read online. And probably a good time. Be careful when you go online because you'll find as many lies online as you will find truth. And researching something online is a very tough thing to do in actuality. Uh, and always remember that everything that's online is not necessarily true. So chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and a vision of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told us some of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon its feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, and a second like unto a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth of, of it between the earth, between the teeth of it. And they said thus of, unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I behold, and, and lo, and another like a leopard, which had upon its back of it four wings of a fowl, and the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and exceedingly strong, and it had iron, great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them one little horn before whom there, there were three of the first horns plucked by the roots, and behold, that in this horn 
were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and his hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was like the fiery flame and his, and his wheels as burning fire. And fiery steam issued and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousand thousands ministered unto him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And judgment was set and the books were open. And I beheld then, because the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, and I beheld till the, till, the voice, uh, till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And concerning the rest of the beast, <coughs> they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the, with the clouds of heaven, and, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him before him. And there was given to him dominion and glory and kingdom of all people, nations, and language to serve him. His dominion was everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. We want to look at this. Daniel says he saw in his vision in verse 2, the four winds were of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And basically, again, we've talked about this in other classes, the four winds basically mean that the whole world was troubled. Okay, from all directions, all points of the compass came together. Again, this is, these are the type of verses people look and see, say, see the, the people that the, wrote the Bible thought the world was flat. No, we use the same terminology. And we've got to be careful about this. The, the, the people who want to try to make the Bible look bad will say all these little poetic things, you know, uh, the sun set, set in the west, you know, and they'll say, well, see, they blew, obviously we use the same term. Okay, we talk about the four corners of the world. Even today, we'll talk about things coming from the four corners of the world. And all we mean by that idiom is they came from all over the world. And so when we see these things, it was not that they believed in necessarily that the world was flat. And I've shared with you, if you get into the history, you know that the educated people of the world have always known that the earth was round. If they knew mathematics, if they could do navigation, if they could do any of these things, they knew the world was round because of the mathematics involved in it. The Egyptians knew the world was, was round. The, the uh, Greeks knew the world was round. Most of the uh, Persians understood that the, the world was round. It was not something that was unknown to the world. But the Greeks, Greeks with mathematics knew it, knew it definitely, and the Egyptians understood. If you, it, it's there's there. You just look it up. I mean, it's out there. They knew this stuff. It is not. We have this arrogance that every time we rediscover something, we're the first one to ever discover it. Clock. Time clocks, uh, the paths of the, the the ocean currents, the the size of the world, gravity, all these things. We have this arrogance that. We're the only ones that have learned this stuff, and, and we from about the Reformation, the, the Reformation period, you know, the 14, 1500s on, when science started blooming again, we, we got this idea that we discovered all this stuff. Well, the Persians definitely knew all of this stuff and maintained it, and we find that lots of this stuff was there. Uh, Egypt had electricity and batteries and indoor plumbing and all of this stuff. They, they were very, very advanced in their heyday. And then they have dwindled down. And then the Persians rediscovered all of this stuff and claimed that they discovered it, even though it was already, had already been. And the Greeks, with all of their knowledge and wisdom, rediscovered all of this stuff. 
they, they understood mathematics and they, and they started understanding trigonometry. And once you started understanding trigonometry, which is the basis of, of navigation, then you start realizing that you've got a curved world because you start measuring distance and go, oh, it's curved, it's not, it's not flat. And all of a sudden you've got, again, knowledge. So anybody who understands navigation and trigonometry eventually learns the world has to be round. The Greeks did, the, the Portuguese did, the Spaniards did, the English did, all these people. Now, did the average everyday person know this stuff? When, when Columbus sailed, being a navigator, he and his navigator would have known that the world was round. His sailors did not know the world was round. They saw a flat map, they saw a flat horizon, and they were totally terrified that they were gonna sail off the end of the, end of the world as they saw it. And this is what, how does, how does the navigator and the captain tell people know the world's round when they look and they don't see a round world? Okay, and they, most of them had never been educated, couldn't read, couldn't write. Again, the, the educated world has always known this stuff. It's the, it's the average person who didn't know it. And so, and then we get the, the normal advertising, you know, look what we have discovered. We've, we've just discovered this. We've known it for millennia, but we just rediscovered it and now we're gonna tell you. And if you look in the book of Job, Job has so much scientific stuff, especially when God starts speaking. You know, the rain falls and the rain returns back and it doesn't, doesn't just keep filling these lakes until they overwhelm everything. Where does it go? And it, go, and it says it goes back to the sky. The hydrolysis cycle. They go to the nitrogen cycle. People die, they go, go into the world, they become part of the system that comes back around again. Uh, the, the systems of science are there. How did the founder of oceanography, he was reading the scriptures and it talked about the paths of the sea. So he goes, are there really paths of the seas? And he started looking for the currents of the, of the, of the oceans. And sure enough, he found the paths of the sea. But they had always been known. Uh, I've been reading in Chronicles where Solomon sent out fleets, but who did he talk to? He talked to a seafaring nation to provide him the sailors for his ships because the Jews did not understand any the navigation and, and everything. So he went and he got experts to sail his ships. Again, we keep going back to there's nothing new under the sun and that includes the scientific discoveries. Because it's very interesting is that God obviously told Adam and Eve about the stars and the planets because the days of the week are named after the planets in order. When you look at their original name and they're named that way in every language. So this go, the, the naming of the stars and the planet, the naming of the planets goes all the way back to the very beginning and to, to, to Babel when God separated the languages and, and put that stuff in there constantly. So nothing is new. None of this stuff is new out there. We just rediscover it every couple hundred years and then we lose the information and we rediscover it because it is out there to be found. Here we've got Daniel talking about the four winds coming together and then he saw four great beasts. The first of which he describes as a lion with eagle's wings and he beheld till the wings were removed, were plucked off and it was lifted up off the earth and made to stand and given to it. And this is Babylon. Babylon came into existence and just conquered the world very quickly and very swiftly and died just as quickly. <laughs> It only lasted for those, yeah, very short period of roughly 100 and I think 120 years, and it, it fell fell down. And it's going to be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. And there's a lot of people who try to also finagle this. They go, well, 
it wasn't the Medo-Persian Empire that took over Babylon. It was only it was only the Medes under under Darius, and then it became the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's all fine. If you want to, how fine do you want to track this down to it? The Medo-Persian Empire is what follows, and so and it says it was another beast, a second like unto a bear, raised up on its side, and it had three ribs in its mouth, and it. It, it between its teeth and it was said arise and devour the bear with three ribs in its teeth we have the Medo, Medo Empire the Persian Empire and once it conquers the Babylonian Empire that all become one empire called the Medo Persian Empire and the Medes were the ones that were the most powerful you know, the, of them and so we see this we see the accuracy of what it is three parts and this a lot of history goes into this section. And then it says, I beheld another like a leopard, which had upon its back four wings like of a fowl, and the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given, in, given unto it. This one was the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great, Great came up and swept the world. And you want to talk about lightning speed. He was 33 years old when he conquered, by the time he finished conquering the then what he called world. He started around 19 or so, and he, by the time he was 33, it said that he cried because there was no more worlds to conquer. I don't really know why he didn't try to go more up into Europe or anything, but he, he was at the end. And he conquered the world, known world very swiftly. He did not have very many defeats in his battle. His army was well-trained. He had one of the actual first professional armies out there, most, most places, and like for King David, it says, if you remember the story of Bathsheba, it starts out with, at the time when kings go out to war. And what that meant was that the farmers had planted their seeds. They would then come and be, be picked up by the, by, the, by the king and marched out to war. And then they would be done with war in time to go back and harvest their fields because there was nothing to do between those times. And then after the harvest, they might go back to war. But usually the weather was too bad then to go to war. It was too rainy, too, too muddy, so you didn't go to war during that period of time. And if, if people read over that, and they don't really realize the significance, but there was a time when those kings said, this is the time we go to war. Alexander the Great, he just went to war. He had a professional army, and he, he just marched. And that's why he took, the war, took over the world. And it says that it had four heads on this animal. When Alexander the Great died, he did not appoint a king. He, it is said that he said, let the strongest one take over the empire. And his four generals split the, the Greek empire. And his, one of his generals was Ptolemy. He, took, he was in charge of North Africa and Egypt primarily. You had the Seleucian dynasty, and he took Mesopotamia. That would be Iraq, Iran, all the way over to India. That was his area. And then the other major one that took it was Lysimachus. He took the Middle East and Asia Minor. And the one that was given Greece was Cassandra. And he was the weakest of them. And he lost his little empire quickly. And it was a whole long series of of rulers and, and the, the actual country of Greece kind of falls apart. But Greece brought much to us. It brought wisdom. It brought knowledge. It brought scientific advancement. It brought a language that was going to be used as a common language. Because even when Rome 
came, they didn't use Latin as the common language. They used Greek as the common language. This is a very powerful picture of this section. And you may have heard of the Ptolemaic dynasty that was in North Africa, or you might have even heard of the Seleucid dynasty. They're still, they, they're still talked about you know, in, in history. So this was this mighty leopard coming in very quickly, very fast, had the wings of the, that helped speed it on, and then it was broken up into four kingdoms. And this again, where people will say, well, see this, you know, the Greeks weren't taken over by the Romans directly. They broke up and, and Rome had to take over. Yeah, well, okay. Everybody out there that knows history knows that the four generals were part of the Greek area that tried to help, uh, what they call Hellenize the area, which was to make Greek influence still maintained. And then he saw that beast in the vision, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, it had iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces, stamped the residue with its feet, and it was diverse from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. Rome was very different from all the other empires it took over. Number one, it, just like Greeks, it had a paid army. But number two, each place that it took over, it left people in charge of, as long as they were willing to understand that they were the Roman Empire and give tribute, these guys could oftentimes hold their own kingdoms <laughs> as long as they realized that they were now Roman and not their own private area. Unless they, unless they wanted to fight Rome and then Rome would take them and destroy them and put somebody else in charge, usually a, a general. But this is why Israel was allowed to be Israel. They just said, well, we're not going to fight you. Just come on in and we will. And when you capitulated to Rome, you were given various extra privileges. You got to keep some of your religion. You got to keep some of your rulers. And this is why Israel and Rome had a very, Romans didn't understand this one God business because they had hundreds of gods and they didn't understand these people that were one God and and didn't want to worship the emperor and, and had problems with all of this. It didn't, it didn't fit with their way of thinking. And of course, for the Jews, it didn't, make, it didn't fit for their way of thinking to have multiple gods and foreign leaders over them. But they came in, and Rome was one that was, either, was very vicious to those who didn't capitulate and were very easygoing on those who did. And this was a, their pattern. And then wherever they went, they took a legion of men from that area and they would match them with a Roman legion so that you had two legions marching at each time. One was Roman and one was basically a foreign legion and the foreign legion was subservient basically to the Roman but was also equal. It was one of those, it was a very unique idea and they would go into battle together each time and you would go and you'd get when that people get injured from the foreigns, you, you went out and you got more people from them. So Rome came in and they were very different in the way they maintained their kingdom. And because it was a republic when it started. Oh yeah, they usually considered themselves a deity, most of them. Which is why you had to make an offering to Caesar. It wasn't a big deal, it was walk up, say, uh, Curio Caesar and drop your little grain into the fire and you had admitted that he was God and, and Lord and and had worshipped him. And so this is why many, many Christians lost their life because they would not say Curio Caesar, they would say you know, that he is not Lord and, and admit that Jesus was Lord, or sometimes, and 
This is going to happen. And even as we get into harder times here, we need to understand there were many Christians who go, well, I can just say this to, and not mean it and, and stay out of trouble. And there were probably hundreds of thousands of Christians who actually offered to, to Caesar to stay out of trouble, not meaning it. They just went up, they, you know, and in their mind, they're saying this, I know this isn't true, but, you know, I can, I can repent later. And, and then others that would say, no, I'm not even going to have the appearance of this evil, which is scriptural. So I'm not saying what they did was right. It is what they did. And this is, and we're going to see the same thing. As things get tough for Christians in the very near future, we have to make some hard decisions. Are we going to go and make it look like we're bending our knee, even if we aren't in our heart and, and basically deny God in, you know, in public? Or are we going to stand for him and possibly lose our life, our reputation, our property, or whatever level it starts at and that's some questions we will have to start facing and i think sooner than we even realize that we're going to be facing these kind of decisions in our in our world because we're we're on the edge we're on the edge we can see it things are changing really fast and so fast that we don't even recognize sometimes how fast they're changing and god is saying right here <laughs> here you go it's it's coming be ready it's a lot of it, a lot of violence, and a lot yeah. of it is unfortunately blown out of proportion yeah. by our, our reporting. I'm not saying it's not happening, but they're making it a lot worse than it is and setting the stage for government interven intervention and more to come because as more comes, the government will say, we have to do something about this. This is something that I'm very concerned of. Our country could stop being a republic very soon because of the extreme violence and all the stuff that's going coming down the pike and it's only intensifying it has been intensifying i mean it was you would hear about it every year so now it's now it's every week you know yeah, and very yeah. soon it's probably going to be very every day and once you get to that point the government's going to say we need to take drastic steps to change this and we might see some very interesting things coming our way maybe even to the point of martial law and the suspension of our elections and all these other things that could happen and say well we need to do these things because things are getting so out of hand we have to take control and this is what i'm looking at i and saying i've been expecting it for a long time and now i'm saying wow we are on the cusp and all we need is some economic news to go along with this and we're going to have some really interesting times ahead of us. The point is that you're making is that the, our founding fathers would be surprised that our government lasted as long as it has. Well, they would. I mean, they didn't. I believe it was Thomas Jefferson who said he believed there'd be a re re revolution every 150 years. Well, our founding fathers understood that men are evil. And that when you put people in government, evil men in government, they are going to gather as much power as they can. And we're starting to see that man being being who they are and so it's not a surprise to anybody it's not a surprise if you read the founding fathers it's not a surprise to them it's actually a surprise to them that it had last that it has lasted this long because they never because they understood the problems of a republic uh, it's been attributed to to one of the greek uh, guys that says that a republic will last until People find out they uh, buy the bulk from the largeness of the people from their taxes. What are our current politicians doing? They're buying the vote. And that is the end of it. And when they get to that point, that is the beginnings of the fall of a republic. 
that? One of the one of the Greek uh, philosophers, it, because Greek. Greek, the Greeks were one of the first republics. And so our founding fathers understood the problems of a republic. The only problem is most of our people today don't understand the problems of a republic. And we're seeing the death toll of the republic. It's only a matter of time. Now, I'm not going to try to predict that time, but it is only a matter of time before the republic collapses. Rome built this up, and it stomped everything down, and it ran. And it said he saw the beast with 10 horns. Now, we've talked about this. Horns are representation of authority, power, dominion, government. Now, the ten horns are all over the place in what people think the ten horns are. Okay, so we're going to give you a couple of examples. Here, I think it's very specific. It is going to be referring to what Rome broke down into. If we go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw the head of gold, the chest of, of silver, the, the thighs of bronze, and the legs and legs of iron. Rome broke into two major empires on it as it started falling apart. One of them was what became the Holy Roman Empire, and it was in charge of Europe primarily. The other half of Europe was called the Eastern Empire or the Byzantine Empire. It was centered in Constantinople in Turkey. And basically, the Byzantine Empire has broken down into what was called the Ottoman Empire, which was Turkey, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, all of those places that are now Muslim countries. Okay, so this Byzantine, which was a Roman, Christian, Eastern Orthodox religion comes out of the Byzantine Empire, but the Roman Empire morphed into, over time, the Ottoman Empire, which basically has those five, five countries as part of it, so that would be the one leg and five toes of Nebuchadnezzar's day. The other side was the Holy Roman Empire, and primarily, I mean, you can make cases for a whole lot more, but primarily, it's Germany, France, Britain, Spain, and Italy. And you could go into all the Balkan states and all this other stuff. And this is where people will say, see, it all falls apart. Well, yes, we understand that he's not naming every single country, every single tribe that was out there. Uh, now, if you want to just say that it was the Holy Roman Empire, then you could get into the whole uh, Yugoslavia and, you know, and all these places. And you can come up with 10 nations just in Europe. So we see this as that whole thing. It started with 10 horns, ten powers, and still exist to this day in its fragmented format. The Roman Empire was never completely replaced by any other empire. Now we've had probably three that have tried to do it. You've got uh, Napoleon, who tried to conquer the world and never got very far. You've got Hitler, who tried to conquer the world and never got all that far. And some people will put Britain in that, who had a very large empire, but they never really conquered much of Europe. They just conquered the rest of the world and, you know, and, and made them colonies. So we've had three kind of empires, but none of them really had any traction under them. They, they never went beyond their military, militaristic leader. 
the Napoleonic France fell when, when, when Napoleon was, was gone, it was gone. When Hitler fell, it was gone. Um, England never like, was, was just colonized in there, and they kind of fell apart. So we've never had the Roman Empire replaced. You know, some people want to put the United States in there, you know, let's say that we were in there. But, you know, we've become strong. Different people have become strong militarily and had some military influence over the world, like Germany, like Napoleon, like England, like the United States. But nobody has had that, this is all mine. <laughs> The world is mine. So Rome has never been replaced. We just want to bring that out. It's, it is that picture of the ten, the ten split, the, toe, the ten toes that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw mixed with clay and, clay and iron, part strong, part weak. And right now, that's what we have in this world. No matter how you want to break up these ten power, you know, leftover Roman Empire, None of them are totally strong. They have their weaknesses, and they're, and they're diverse. They don't stick together because of the clay and, clay and iron do not stick together. So we have this broken kingdom. We see the horns here. And it says that at the end, one horn is going to replace three. Now, we don't know which three of the nations will be the ones that pop it out. For years, it was considering the Rome, Holy Roman Empire and how certain different tribes have been almost wiped out. And there's three of them that have been almost wiped out. And that's saying that his, that come out of that. Nowadays, people are starting to talk about the Islamic world possibly being the, the ten, part of the ten horns, which if you split it up in those two and the Byzantine Empire became the Ottoman Empire, and we start looking at Iraq, Iran, and, and Turkey starting to come together as a Muslim power, that's three horns that can become one, and saying that the Antichrist will rise up out of a Muslim world, which then gives you an idea of how the Israelites can have their temple built on the Temple Mount without a whole lot of problem because it's a Muslim leader saying, we're going to go ahead and split the, the Temple Mount with the, with the Jews and let them build their temple. So we start seeing how that can be the case. I'm not going to get real strong on any point on what, what three horns are going to be replaced by the one. There, for years, people said, well, it has to come out of the Baltic states because those are the three that were kind of, kind of destroyed. And they go, the leader has to come out of that. Has to be a European out of those states. Nowadays, and this is why when we start getting into eschatology, the study of end times, I've been studying it long enough to know that it, it is so fluid and it changes with, as, as history and, and things start coming up and new things start coming up. It gets changed so much, and now there are a lot of people saying it's from, from the Islamic world, and it makes a lot of sense that it would be from the Islamic world that he rises up. But this is something that, if you want to get dogmatic, I'd be very strong warning not to. The Jewish leaders missed the first coming of Jesus because they were dogmatic that the Messiah was going to start his kingdom when he showed up. So dogmatic that they never even looked into his birth. You know, they go, well, this guy's from Nazareth. He's supposed to be from Be uh, Bethlehem. If they had just spent a little time researching, they would have found out he was born in Bethlehem, that he had gone to Egypt, that he was now called the Nazareth, just as it said it would be. But they didn't understand, and they didn't want to understand. So this is my warning to us. As we start getting into looking at these end times, be very careful how dogmatic you get about anything because 
the moment you get dogmatic and say this is the way it has to be, we may become just like the Jews who miss a lot of stuff because they're so sure something has to happen in a certain way. And this is something that's very important. We need to be willing to listen to people when they teach us, but not so willing that we ignore the scriptures. But if it really is scriptural what they're saying, then we kind of need to look at it and say, hmm, let me give that some consideration. Because I know lots of people who are so stuck in the way that they were taught 40 years ago. And, and you know, I've talked to a number of pastors who are still stuck in eschatology as it was taught 30, 40 years ago and aren't looking at where things are moving to. And remember when we were studying in, in, in uh, Revelation, we were talking about the two witnesses that are going to be preaching, you know, whoever they are. And it says the whole world watched them. Well, for, for millennia, people go, well, obviously that is uh, hyperbole because the whole world couldn't watch these guys. We live in an age where we could picture, you know, a satellite cable TV channel, you know, see these two crazy prophets, 24-7, day, night, you know. We, we say, you know, we now know that this wasn't hyperbole. It wasn't, it wasn't just they're going to be well-known, but we now know and can understand how you would have a channel watching these crazy guys 24-7 and that it is not something that was symbolism or... And this is why I say we need to be careful. And the people that were taught well, well back in the 30s and 40s, back before, the, you know, when, when you watched news and if you saw some live pictures, they were two days after, you know, 24 hours or more after the event. And, so, and everybody in this room is old enough to remember those days. You watch news and you didn't see live coverage of the event. You saw pictures that had to be transmitted in some way and that usually meant hand-delivered. So you got on a plane and it was 24 to 48 hours before you saw any real pictures of what it was they were reporting. And now they just flip to the camera cameraman who's on the ground filming it as it's happening anywhere in the world. And so we have a totally different world and we need to keep up our eschatology saying all these things we used to think were symbolism may not be as symbolic as it seems. When we used to talk about a mark on our hands and foreheads that we, you couldn't buy or sell and it, they're going, well, what a silly thing, you know, how, you know, or one, one, one kind of money or one currency or you wouldn't be able to buy without out this. And they're, going, and they're going, well, how can you ever do that? Well, we now know how easy it is. How many of us ever touch cash in many cases? You know, I'm talking to a room of older people, so we probably have people still touching cash in this room. But you know, even I don't touch cash very often anymore. I pay my bills by check or by card with an online transfer and pretty much just use the debit card. This is where we're at in our world where we get to see just what the Bible said was gonna happen being a reality. And I'm, and you know, it's not far off that we're not going to have cash printed anymore because, and I can tell you what they're going to say, we can't keep ahead of the counterfeiters. Because that's what they're telling us they're changing our money every five years right now is they're trying to stay ahead of counterfeiters and they're finally just going to say we can't do it because the government already wants everybody on a debit card and direct deposit for their, for their money that they're getting from them. So it's going to be very simple. It's going to sound logical that we have no cash printed and then it's going to be very logical thereafter to say well we just want to put a mark on you know put your information on you because nobody can steal it nobody can you can't lose it it's going to sound very logical to the world as we go down this path 
toward what the Bible tells us has already happened. I've shared with you, for me, you know, it never dawned on me to go to a Burger King or a McDonald's and use a debit card. But I went out with my kids one day and they go, well, they're just going to spin by the fast food and they use their debit card. And I'm going like, oh, yeah, you really can use it there, can't you? You know, to me, that was like the last bastion of cash. You know, it's, you're going out to these little restaurants, you know. Yeah. All of this stuff just shows us how accurate the Word of God is and how real it is and how easy it's going to be for people to make this a logical decision to follow this path. Back in the 70s, I heard this talk show host in the middle of the night going, yeah, we should just have a, a tat, you know, your credit card tat number tattooed on your, on your, on your hands because you know, all these people losing their, losing their credit cards, you won't be able to lose your hand. I'm going, wow, and that stuck with me. I'm going, how easy it's going to be for people to follow, follow this idea of this makes sense, this is good. And it's going to sound so logical and people, and you think about how fast ID theft is moving along. It's going to make perfect sense to get rid of ID theft because all your information is going to be right there and it's not going to be usable by anybody else. All of this stuff, when you look at it, says the things we can do nowadays are really interesting. And then the last thing is that, you know, the, if you have studied it, the UN has already divided the world into 10 regions. So that when they take control of the world, and they will, they've already got 10 regions, which makes it all of a sudden sound like the 10 horns. Yeah. Now this pushes it a little further out and a little more speculative, but it is, it is something you look at and say, why did they pick 10? You know, why did they pick 10 and have their mapped out world and how they're going to split up the world when, they, when they're running the it and putting people in charge of each, each region? And they're pushing to take over power of everything and take more and more influence and they're wanting a world tax so that they can be freed up from these governments that are supporting them. Sounds great at first. Oh, everything's going to sound great to the world. And also, when you think about this, and everybody in this room is old enough that they don't know this, but if you go to school, you're being taught that governments and, and nations are the problem in this world. And you're being taught that the answer to it is just to have one world government. It's the borders that's the problem. It's the... It's the separation of the nations that's the problem. So when we see things that our government officials are talking about, and we're just blown away by it, they're speaking what they have been taught since the 80s. So all of our leaders were taught this garbage that it's the world is the, needs to be the solution of it, and that the nations are the problem, and so that there should be, and when you hear people on the news, well, there really shouldn't be any borders, or, you know, there, there shouldn't be any such thing as illegal aliens because there shouldn't be borders. We're all one world. We're all citizens of the one, one world. And if you start listening, you're going to hear these statements coming out. And I've heard, I hear them all the time when, when they're interviewing people on the news. And, they're, and the sad thing is our leaders believe this and have for many presidents and many, many senators Many, many congressmen all believe this idea that it should be just one world, and they're ready to capitulate to a one-world government system. We are right on the cusp of everything. Listen to our leaders, and it goes back beyond Obama, beyond Clinton. It goes back all the way through the bushes. I mean, it's been a long time in the process where this has been laying the foundation of one world government that this little horn coming out of the ten horns is going to represent. One world drawing everybody together 
leading to the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation while we are gone with the marriage supper of the Lamb and preparing to come back as the bride of Christ, leading then into Jesus coming back, setting up the one world, one world uh, government that he's in charge of for a thousand years, the release of Satan for one last final battle, proving to people that even in a perfect environment, man's sin wants to sin, and then God destroying this, the, this current heaven and earth and starting with a new heaven and earth. All of this pictured in this story. And this is the great value when we look at all of the things going on. You know, how close are we? I don't know. We're a whole lot closer than we were than when the apostles thought it was just around the corner because they thought he was going to come back in their day. And every generation has thought that he's going to come back in their day. But I can tell you, no generation has seen as much preparation for the end times as this, this generation. Is it possible that this is not the generation? Technically, I guess it is, but the only thing that we have in our favor that nobody else says, Israel is a nation again. And God said that this nation, this generation will not pass until, when, once they come back, that that generation will not pass. So how long is the generation? Back in 88, everybody was waiting for Jesus to come back because normally in the Bible, 40, 40 years was a generation. And how long is a generation? Well, absolutely, it's whoever the youngest person was that was born during that time until, they, until the last person alive in 1948 dies could be a generation. Okay, so we're close. We are close. How close? I don't know. I don't know how close we are, but we're getting closer every day. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our hearts for the trials and tribulation that are going to come our way as we get approaching this end period that this, is, this all is predicting. Because the next step was, after the, after the horn, and it says in verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool, and his throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels like fiery, burning fire. A fiery steam issued forth and came forth before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and judgment was set, and the books were open. Jesus comes and set, sets up the kingdom. And it says, thousands and thousands ministered to him. That's a million. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood in judgment. That's a, that's a hundred, million, hundred million. And I think that is just a statement of many. You know, because a hundred million back in that day was something people couldn't fathom, which was why they used 10,000. If you ever think about, you know, we sing Amazing Grace, and, and that song was written in the, in the 1700s, 1600s, 1700s, right in that area. And he says, when we've been there 10,000 years, and 10,000 to that generation was an unfathomable number. They couldn't, they couldn't even begin to think in terms of 10,000. Now, we throw terms like a million, a billion, a trillion around, and you know, we, like, like we know what those are, but we really can't even fathom what that, what that was. Uh, you, start, you start thinking about how big the numbers are that we throw around. And here he's given a number of 100 billion. 100 billion people in judgment. And I'm sure that he was just saying, 
more than we can count from yeah. here to the moon. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways to try to describe how big these numbers are because we really, we, even though we use them, most of us can't even figure out how big a million is. Yeah, it's, we have this concept, yes, it's got this bunch of zeros at the, at the end of it, but a million dollars, and you know, nowadays we don't even think twice, I mean, it's, what's a million dollars, you know, because um, now we start talking about billionaires, you know, most people couldn't live on a million dollars because they wouldn't know how to. Uh, they would they would blow it so fast because their friends would all want money and they'd buy houses and cars and and before they knew it their million would be gone in a heartbeat because they don't year. know how to use it. Most people who have won the lottery wish they wish they had never won it because it ruined their life. Number one, they go in debt because they don't understand the tax ramifications of having a million dollars given to you. They don't understand you know how to say number one they don't know how to say no to their friends or to themselves. And before they know it, their, their money is gone. That's a lot of money to have at your disposal at any one time. Those who know how to use it, it's not a bad deal. Those who don't, and that's why you see most athletes who have these big checks are, end up retiring broke. Oh, easy come, uh, easy go, right? It's easy come, easy go, and that's, and that's part of the Bible in one sense, is money that's quickly gained is quickly lost. Uh, let's see, verse 12, and as concerning the rest of the beast, they that had dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, and this is the millennial kingdom. We don't, there's really no definition of what a season and a time means here. They wanted, some people want to say it's a year and a half, which doesn't make sense because it doesn't fit into any of the, it's just a, a period of time, I think he's trying to say. And I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came forth the clouds from heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, and it shall not pass away, and is a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Once Jesus takes his kingdom beyond the millennial kingdom, he has a permanent kingdom. The, the millennial kingdom is the beast coming back and having his last little, his last little hurrah, and all of that is because how many times have you heard people say, well, if we just had a perfect environment, if there just weren't all these bad influences, people would be good. The releasing Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom is just to prove all those people wrong. One more chance to say, I'm giving you a chance to follow me. During the millennial kingdom, children are going to be born. People are going to live. It says that if you, don't, if you live to be less than 100 years old, you're a child. So there are people who live and die during the Millennial Kingdom. Most people will probably make it back to, just like the Garden of Eden days, they will live the entire Millennial Kingdom period and be able to see God for everything He is and make a choice. And then Satan comes back one last chance to say, God really doesn't care for you. He's keeping things from you, just as he told Adam and Eve, because he knows that you can be like him, and he's going to raise up an army that's going to be, go to war against God, whom they've seen. Not the God who they had to walk, walk by faith for, not the God that they couldn't see, but they're going to see Jesus Christ, God, sitting on a throne and worshiping him and be willing to go to war against him. It's hard to fathom how they could do that. It's hard to fathom how anybody would want to do that. And yet that is what's going to happen at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. And then he destroys everything and it starts all over. 
with a new heaven and new earth that's perfect, totally brand new. And we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We thank you that you know all that's coming and also that nothing's going to surprise you when we face trials and tribulations. None of it surprises you. Prepare hearts for that time. Bring people to you so that they get to be in a wonderful relationship with you, having confessed their sins and know that they deserve punishment and ask you to forgive them. And we just thank you for how much you love us. In your son's name, amen.